All right. Thank you, Jessica. Thank you, Sam. Thank you, Vince. And good morning, everyone. As always, it is so good to see you and to be joining you guys in worship this morning. Uh, if you're new or if you're visiting, as just mentioned, as always, we want to welcome you to our church. And uh, if there's anything in today's message or in today's sermon text and scripture that you're curious about, uh, we do something called the Sunday Q&A after. Uh, we took a break from that uh, during Holy Week, but we're going to resume that today. So uh, definitely stick around in this Zoom room if you're curious or you want to know about uh, anything regarding the text or the sermon. We'd, I'd be more than happy to stick around and answer those questions for you. Uh, as just mentioned during the announcements, it was a I, I can't even put into words how much of an encouragement it really was last week to see a lot of you guys in person for Easter. Uh, it really doubled down on my conviction of just how important it is for the church to physically gather, to sing together, to see one another, to fellowship. And so, as Jess mentioned, uh, we're right at the cusp of confirming that we're going to be having another gathering at Parks Junior High. I, I'll go as far as to say, save the date for May 9th, because that's the next one we are looking at. So definitely save the date, and we're hoping that we can expand the cap. So hopefully everybody that wants to come is able to join us. And so definitely looking forward to that. But for those that came in person last week, and for those who've been continually joining us online through Zoom, I hope that this Zoom worship or the return to it for this time period is not doesn't seem like a step back. I know I mentioned this last week as well, but that all the more it can make us prayerful and hopeful that, wow, let's really close this chapter of having to meet virtually and get back to meeting in person sooner than later. And so... So that's that. Uh, now, as a reminder, as we get into the sermon for today, we did take a pause the past two Sundays in light of Holy Week for Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday. But for those who are just joining us, we've actually been going through a sermon series through the book of, Genu uh, through the book of Genesis. And the pause that we had actually came at a pretty appropriate time in the text in our series because we pretty much closed out Abraham's story and narrative two, week two, three weeks ago with this dramatic scene that a very famous one in Genesis 22 where God tests Abraham's faith by calling him to sacrifice Isaac and see if he's willing to give up the promised offspring in Isaac. And now today, we're going to actually pick back up in chapters 25, verse 19, as we kind of close Abraham's story and transition to the next major character and narrative in Genesis. And it follows the character and story of a man named Jacob. So we're going to see who is Jacob, where does he come from? We're going to see that he's one of Isaac's sons. So if you have your Bibles, uh, please pull them out and let's read together our sermon text in chapter 25. We'll read from verse 19 all the way to verse 34 as we begin this next major chunk of Genesis. Uh, chapter 25, verse 19 through 34. This is the reading of God's word. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padam Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Verse 29. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, 
Let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die of what use is a birthright to me. And Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Amen. This is the reading of God's word. So it's an exciting time for baseball fans because Major League Baseball, MLB, just had its opening day this past month. And for the majority of our church, it's an especially exciting time because our uh, lovely Los Angeles Dodgers, they're back in action to hopefully repeat the amazing victory they had in winning the World Series last season. And for those who are not Dodgers fans, the few of you in the audience today, that's okay. Uh, Jesus has removed the wall of hostility. We are all one in Christ, but hopefully you'll be converted sooner than later. But all that being said, uh, I remember one of the most exciting things for the Dodgers was actually when they signed our megastar outfielder Mookie Betts to this massive deal. And for every kind of general manager who looks for talent, signing a superstar like Mookie Betts, that's kind of a no-brainer. I mean, he is kind of the epitome of the type of player that you want to put on your team to form a winning team. And the most obvious method and filter and rationale to create a winning team, whether it's in baseball, whether it's sports in general, or any team for that matter, is usually you got to find the best, the strongest, and the most competent and skillful person. I don't think anyone would argue that. Well, back in 2011, I don't know if you guys saw this movie. There was an interesting movie based off a true story called Moneyball. It came out and it was based off this general manager of the Oakland A's named Billy Bean. And he kind of came into the picture as a general manager who kind of subverted and challenged the traditional way that players were picked and evaluated. And he introduced this completely different paradigm on how he would form a, uh, form a team and select players. And through this new system that he introduced, they actually ended up in drafting players that other teams would not even consider looking at based on the more traditional methods of evaluating players. And so the most obvious question is, as you watch that movie and you hear of the story, well, does that new method work? Is it actually a winning strategy? And in the movie, we see that despite initial opposition and criticism and initially not working, it actually did lead to an unexpectedly successful team and season that, that won lots and lots of games. Now, why do I share that? When we first started this series, we shared how part of the reason we're going to the book of Genesis is it is a book of origins. It deals with the origin of the heavens and the earth. It deals with the origin of humanity, deals with the origin of the people and the generations that serve as the foundation for the rest of redemptive history and God's plan through scripture, which eventually leads to the birth, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which we celebrated last week. And using the analogy of a general manager assembling a team, we have seen so far through Genesis that God's selection of the people that he chooses to covenant with or to put on his team, if I can put it that way, is actually pretty questionable in a lot of ways, right? I mean, to put it simply, God does not seem to pick the type of people we would think that he should pick based on external appearance and character. And while the broader topic of God's sovereign will, why he chooses who he does and how he ends up choosing people. That's a massive topic. And a lot of it is appropriate left to the realm of mystery for our human limited minds. Today, I actually want to scratch the surface a bit of highlighting a few aspects of God's sovereign will 
based off our text and the Genesis narrative so far. So if you're taking notes through our text today, we're going to see three things about God's sovereign will. And now that's a very large term. Just know I'm going to use it very broadly and interchangeably with sovereignty of God, God's sovereign will, God's sovereign choosing, God's election. Now they have their own nuances. So if you're curious about the specifics of it, stay after. But generally speaking, I'm going to talk about it as a general term. Number one, we're going to see that God's sovereign will is often perplexing, but it is purposeful. Perplexing, but purposeful. Secondly, we're going to see God's sovereign will is rooted in grace and not merit. And third, we're going to close by seeing that God's sovereign will cause us to submit and to trust him. Okay, so perplexing and purposeful, rooted in grace, not merit and to submit and to trust him. And the hope is, again, that we could have a deeper understanding of who God is and a deeper grasp of why the sovereignty of God is a beautiful doctrine that we should be treasuring as Christians. So first, God's will is perplexing yet purposeful. You see, at this point in the Genesis narrative, we've seen enough to get a taste of how God seems to work when it comes to the type of people he chooses. And quite frankly, it should leave a lot of us scratching our heads because look at how Isaac's story starts in verse 19, right? It says, these are the generations of Isaac. So that entire Abraham story has now come to a close. And in the narratives and the literature of Genesis, when it says these are the generations, it's kind of turning the chapter now, turning the page into a new story with new characters. And it says, Abraham fathered Isaac. Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And verse 21 should kind of make us perk up a little. Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. Now, does this setup sound familiar? Verse 21 should sound very familiar because Abraham, his wife, Sarah, was also barren, right? And so she conceived of Isaac with Abraham when she was 90 years old. And after that whole ordeal, we learned that her daughter-in-law, Rebecca, Isaac's wife, starts off the story with the same exact problem. She is also barren. And not just for a little bit, a short amount of time. It says Isaac is 40 when they get married. And by the time they have children, he is 60. So there's another 20 years of barrenness that he deals with. And remember, a central part of God's covenant that we've explained has to do with descendants. So here's the question. Why does a sovereign God seemingly ordain that the central figures of this story, like Abraham and Isaac, end up with women who are barren and unable to bear children if children are such a fundamental aspect of his covenant promise? I mean, Hagar, she had no problem with children. She seems like she was a very fertile woman. Why didn't he just use Hagar? Or why not choose another more fertile woman for Isaac to kind of get the redemptive plan and ball rolling, if you can kind of get my drift, and to get this promise of descendants done with sooner than later? Why all this delay? Why all these obstacles that God sovereignly places and ordains? And so that's what I mean by God's sovereign will is often perplexing. You see, if God's goal and aim is to provide descendants for Abraham and now Isaac, why sovereignly ordain the obstacle of infertility front and center? Why bring barren woman into the story that's going to make it more difficult to get that promise? It doesn't make sense on the surface. And that's where through Genesis, we have been increasingly witnessing the multifaceted and complex purpose of God in his sovereign will. For example, in the case of Abraham, we saw that God's purpose was not just to give Abraham the promised son in Isaac, but it was also simultaneously 
to test Abraham's faith and grow his trust in God that he is faithful to provide. In other words, I'm hoping that whether you've been Christian for a long time or this is the first time you're hearing about the doctrine of sovereignty, that as you look through Genesis, you can see one thing that is becoming clarified is that God's sovereign will is a much more 3D type thing than a one-dimensional 2D type thing. For example, yes, it is true. One of the purposes of God was to move the covenant promise forward by Isaac's birth and for Isaac to eventually give birth as well, as we will see. But at the same time, God's purpose was also to grow the faith of his people and to move them into a closer and more intimate relationship with him as they waited for the promise to be fulfilled. So that's why in verse 21, look what it says. It says that Isaac prays to the Lord for Rebekah. Now on paper, Isaac was fully aware and he should have known that God's gonna give me children. I am the covenant offspring I am the only one that Sarah has given birth to. So technically he knows on paper, God has to fulfill the promise through me. But at the same time, that awareness does not prevent him from still going to God in dependence and prayer. And you see, that's the point a lot of us miss in our journey of faith. You see, a lot of times we have this two-dimensional understanding of God in that we're tempted to see him as a means to an end. We view God a lot of times as the means or sometimes even the obstacle to get to the fulfillment of what we're waiting for or what we expect to receive. And so that's why we end up going to God. But our text clearly shows an intimate relationship and trust in God is not supposed to be the means in the life of a Christian. It is actually supposed to be the end. And that's where a lot of utilitarian people like ourselves, we totally misunderstand what the function and purpose of being in relationship with God is. For a lot of us, being in relationship with God is the means for us to get a happier life, to get that job, to get that spouse. What Genesis is showing is that everything in your life is the means to the end of being in relationship with God. It's a subtle yet fundamental difference. And so what we see in the, in the purpose of the sovereignty of God is he wants to move people away from the shallow utilitarian relationship that they have into a much more intimate, profound, and personal one. Now, if I didn't make it clear, the implication as the story of the Bible unfolds is that God is absolutely and entirely sovereign behind every single thing that happens, from the small to the big. And I will say off the bat, the doctrine of God's sovereignty, not everyone agrees on it. It can be somewhat controversial. And without getting into the nitty-gritty, just know at our church, it is one of the three distinctives that we have in our statement of faith. And we wholeheartedly affirm that we believe the scriptures attest of a God who is totally sovereign over everything in our lives. And if that's true, what does this mean? Well, in one sense, that leads to a lot of confusion. Here's why. Let me bring it down to earth. Because that means the delay that some of you guys are experiencing in your life whether it be with moving forward in relationship, marriage, starting a family, wanting to get a career, that that delay, it's not random, but it is within the scope of God's will. He is behind it. It means that the suffering that you experienced or are experiencing or that you witness around you, it is not random or accident. It is within the scope of God's sovereign will. It means that even COVID, this global pandemic, 
and all the difficult situations that we've seen that's related to and unrelated to COVID and that we've faced in this past year and that we're continuing to face as we move into the near future are not by accident, but they are within the sovereign will of God. So let me make it clear. If that's the case, that makes it very perplexing and confusing a lot of times, doesn't it? But what we also learn is that it is only if God is absolutely sovereign that despite things being perplexing, they can also be purposeful. That despite us being confused, we can also be comforted. Because the scriptures established from the very beginning through Genesis that God's sovereign will is never random. It is never impulsive or accidental. It is always purposeful in growing our faith and drawing us closer to him in trust. So quick application for us today. If you're facing a hardship, an obstacle, a struggle, a delay, you can take heart as God's children that God is a sovereign God who is not unaware or he's not passively and powerlessly in the background of your situation, but in his sovereignty, he is purposefully and purposely involved in everything going on in your life. So that's the first aspect, scratching the surface of sovereignty, but we haven't even got to the meat of the text, which leads to the second and main part, which is God's sovereign will, point number two, is rooted in grace, and not merit. Grace and not merit. You see, through this story that we read in our text, we find that God's will is not only perplexing, but there does seem to be a rhyme and reason to how he's been making decisions so far. You see, in the ancient world, one of the most unchallenged and culturally accepted realities was the practice and idea of primogeniture, which basically meant that the firstborn has all the rights and all the privileges above all the children. We see hints of this still alive in a lot of cultures, like Korean culture, for example. Even though they won't say it, parents heavily favor firstborns, especially if they are sons. There's something about the being the firstborn, even today, that carries a lot of weight. Back then, all the more, it was unquestioned that the firstborn is always your favored child and privileged child. So going back to the Moneyball analogy, if as a GM, you have only one choice to build your team around, in the ancient world, the most obvious choice would have always been the firstborn for anything and everything. They were the favorite. They had the rights to an inheritance. But look at God's track record of choosing so far in Genesis through the lens of the cultural norm of primogeniture. Number one, the first two siblings we see, Cain and Abel. Cain is the firstborn, and yet scripture seems to say that God favors and accepts Abel's sacrifice. Strange. Ishmael and Isaac. Ishmael is technically the firstborn of Abraham, but for some reason, God's covenant promise goes to Isaac. In today's text, we see in verse 23, when Rebekah comes before God, he comes to Rebekah before either is even born. And he says, you know, the older shall serve the younger. In fact, if that's not enough evidence for you, here's a little sneak peek that we're going to get to later in Genesis. Joseph, who is the youngest of many, many children, is actually the one that God ends up using. Later, another giant of the faith, Moses, not many people know this, he's actually the younger brother of his brother Aaron. So there is definitely a scriptural theme here, and various texts in scripture actually point back specifically to the story of Jacob and Esau to reiterate and emphasize that God's sovereign election in choosing the younger was for no reason other than that was out of the pleasure of his sovereign will. Now, through the eyes of an ancient reader, 
God's decision-making would not only be perplexing now, now it is scandalous. Everything in the world and common cultural sense says the older is more important, the older is more powerful, and yet God seems to be going out of his way from the very beginning of scripture to subvert the world's way of valuing and choosing. So here's the question. So why Jacob and not Esau? I think this is where our natural human instinct is to want to resolve this perplexing decision by, by justifying it with an answer that is satisfactory to our minds. And I think a lot of us often do this when it comes to God's sovereign will. We want to make an answer, whether it's because you have a non-Christian friend who's curious or you yourself, you want to kind of defend God, like, oh, here's why he did it. So a lot of people have actually tried to explain that, well, here's why God chose Jacob, that somehow Jacob had an edge or was more favorable. I know for me growing up in church, the children's material that I, I was always taught growing up always painted Esau to be kind of this barbaric, unrighteous, impulsive character, while Jacob was more of like a, a reserved and respectable character. Now, I'm going to completely obliterate that because let's put that theory to the test and squeeze out from the text if there's anything in the text on a human level that would maybe justify why God chose Jacob over Esau. So let's quickly look at Esau. The text tells us objectively Esau literally means red and hairy because he came out red and hairy. That's what it is. Back then, names would describe the circumstance that you came out or would describe you. Names always had a correlation. So because he came out red and hairy, they named him red and hairy, Esau. And verse 27 tells us Esau was clearly probably the modern day REI Patagonia type man, right? He was more of an outdoorsy man. He was a very skillful hunter, a man of the field, as the text says which means he liked to spend a lot of his time outdoors and outside, probably love backpacking in the ancient world. And the text also mentioned verse 28. That's why his father Isaac favored him because he likely shared his more quote unquote manly love of hunting and eating meat. And he would eat his game that he would hunt. And the biggest thing that often is highlighted when this is told is that Esau sells his birthright to Jacob. Birthright being mean his privilege as the firstborn. Right In verse 29, this tells us that famous story. Esau one day comes exhausted from the field, asks Jacob for some of that beautiful red lentil stew, and he ends up selling him his birthright, aka his status as the firstborn for that bowl of stew. Now, there's more that can be drawn out from Esau, but on the surface, it does seem like, wow, this guy, he's a very carnal, impulsive man. He clearly foolishly undervalued his birthright. That's what it means that he despised it. He basically did not value it appropriately. And because Esau's character traits are more explicit and loud, I think we naturally gravitate towards thinking, oh, no wonder God chose Jacob. Esau is a poor choice of a man to move the covenant forward with. And I think that's where our natural Western narrative mold of, you know, when there's an antagonist, there's usually a protagonist. When there's an evil character, there's often a good character. Or when there's a bad choice, there's usually a good choice. We're just subconsciously through Hollywood, through our upbringing, through the stories we read, through always wanting a happy ending, we kind of presume a natural balancing of the force upon every story that we read. Well, not so fast. Let's see what the text says about Jacob. Verse 26 tells us, Jacob comes out of the womb holding Esau's heel, and therefore they name him Jacob, because Jacob sounds like heel in, in Hebrew, right? Imagine if we named people the way we named them back then. We'd have wild names, right? The text tells us, unlike Esau, Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in the tent. So definitely very contrasting to Esau's lifestyle. He was probably not a hunter. It's very likely that he kind of raised more sheep on the pasture, maybe a nomadic shepherd rather than a hunter. 
And to use loose examples, he was probably clearly the more domestic introverted of the two. That's probably why he was more of a mama's boy, according to the text, why Rebecca favored him. And that naturally explains also why he was cooking, right? In verse 29, he kind of stayed in the home more. And the subtle underemphasized character trait of Jacob is that he is a cunning and crafty dude. I mean, he clearly takes advantage of Esau. And I, I read a commentary. I thought this was fascinating. You don't see it in the English text, but it says in the original language, whenever Esau talks, he seems to use incomplete sentences, almost as if he's an uneducated and unrefined man. And that obviously fits his persona. But if you study Jacob's words in the original language, commentators point out that his speech seems actually overly refined to the point that it's almost premeditated, as if he had been planning this out for a long time. In other words, this isn't just a case where Jacob is the better choice between the two. This is a case where there's two bad choices. They are both sinners in their own right. Esau in his fleshly impulsiveness, Jacob in his cunning deceptiveness. So the real lens and question we should ask is, why does God choose either of them and here's where the main point clearly shines through. The answer is simple. It is purely and solely by his grace. There's nothing in the text that tells us Jacob did anything to merit or earn God's choosing of him. And this is where I want to make a quick note on a common issue I think a lot of people have with God's sovereign will. And that's the issue of fairness. Especially here in the West, we are obsessed with the idea of fairness and our personal perception of right and wrong. That's why I want to reiterate this point. God's sovereign will, it is rooted in grace and not merit. And praise God that it is. Because here's why. You see, if the definition of fairness is that we receive what we deserve, and God's sovereign will was rooted in fairness and merit, the Bible would be three chapters long. God created Adam and Eve. They disobeyed and failed. And God fairly condemned them and gave them what they deserved. The end. Very fair. Very just. But obviously we see the story goes on. And so what we really should actually wrestle with is that the biblical reality is that God chose to stop being fair the second he let Adam and Eve walk out of the garden of Eden alive. You guys realize that? The second Adam and Eve left Eden breathing and alive, God stopped being fair. And since then, we are seeing God's sovereign hand in orchestrating his redemptive plan and roadmap to Jesus. And we, miss, we need to know this biblical truth. Redemption, the rescuing and saving of mankind, is not fair. It is grace. It's not fair. God's sparing of Noah and his family is not merit. It is grace. God's choosing of Jacob is not merit or partiality. It is grace purely out of the goodness of a gracious and sovereign God. And don't get me wrong, it's definitely still a mystery. I'm sure there's many questions that you can have to this. And that's totally understandable regarding a massive topic like this. But at the root of it, we need to understand God's sovereign choosing of Jacob over Esau before they are even born is not the picture of an unfair God. It is a picture of a sovereignly gracious God. Now, I might have been super nerdy, so I'm going to illustrate to you in a very, very understandable way. So we, a lot of us love dogs. Myself, personally, I'm more of a cat person, but I, I appreciate dogs. I think dogs are cute and cuddly as well. So my sister-in-law, Erica, my wife, Angela's older sister, she loves dogs. 
I know a lot of our church members love dogs as well. Some of uh, the dogs at our church are very popular on Instagram. They have their own Instagram. Many people follow, like, and comment because why? They're so cute. They're cuddly. They are lovable. Well, one day, Angela and I, we visited Erica, and she had adopted a dog named Biscuit, a basset hound. Now, usually when someone brings home a dog, within the first five minutes, I can determine why they brought this dog home. Either the dog is really cute, they're really well-behaved, or sometimes someone has paid them to take this dog. Well, Biscuit was a mystery to me because at first glance, he definitely wasn't cute. And I could definitely tell something was off about this dog. Turns out as Erica started sharing with us, because we had a lot of questions, Biscuit was a rescue dog that literally nobody wanted. The more we heard about him, the more our hearts broke because in the flesh, uh, more our hearts broke. But I will tell you, like, honestly, in my flesh, I was uh, more confused the more I heard why Eric would want to adopt Biscuit. Because turns out Biscuit was extremely mistreated by his previous owner. When Erica went to adopt him, they said that Biscuit was likely chained outside on a short leash for almost eight years, not dog years, eight human literal years. He was clearly beat up regularly and mistreated. In fact, they said they found bullet wounds in him, like from a gun. Not only that, I saw, when I say that something was off about him, it turns out it's because he was pretty much deaf and blind by the time she adopted him. Not turning deaf, but he was pretty much deaf and blind. And so that's where I noticed, oh, he was wearing diapers because he couldn't control his pee and poo. He couldn't obviously see either where he was going. So he had to get these special diapers. And it would be one thing if Erica kind of capped it all off and said, oh, but you know, the reason I took him in was they paid me to take care of him. No, no, no. Erica actually has to pay more to take him in because he has all these hospital visits. He has all these special treatments he needs to get. He has all these extra things that she needs to buy to care for this special dog that normal dogs don't need. And yet, Erica pretty much rearranged her life in order to love on this dog and take him in. And she's not embarrassed of him. She even takes photos of him like other people do with their cute dogs. And I concluded, wow, the reason why she adopted Biscuit boils down to this. She had grace and mercy in her heart to take this dog in that no one else would want to take in simply because she loves dogs. And out of the sovereign, gracious will of her own, she chose to choose Biscuit. Now tell me, what would you say if you heard all of that? And I told you, and then you know what? I went to Erica after. I looked her in the eye and I said, well, that's really unfair, Erica. That's really unfair of you that you would pick Biscuit and not the other dogs. In that fundamental misunderstanding of what the picture is, of what's actually going on here. You see, in a similar way, the picture of God's sovereign election is not one of a bunch of good, well-behaved, righteous people, and God just chooses the ones he likes better than the others. The Bible says, spiritually speaking, we are all far worse than biscuit, dead in our trespasses, blind to our sin. In this story, Esau and his hedonistic, impulsive, fleshly lifestyle, Jacob and his deceptive nature, and all of us in the myriad of different ways we fall into sin and temptation. But God loves us. So what does he do? He pays not just a great cost, but the greatest cost to purchase us by sacrificing his own son, Jesus Christ. And get this, not just to purchase us, but to go the extra mile and to now forgive us and then adopt us. 
That's fundamentally different. It'd be one thing if Erica bought Biscuit and was like, okay, I can't continue to pay the cost of being in a relationship with this dog. So I'm going to buy him out of his bondage. I'm going to give him to someone else. No, no, no. God says, I'm not only going to purchase these sinners, I'm going to adopt them and incur the regular ongoing cost that will now come in being relationship with still fallen sinners like you and me. So that means it's not like he can purchase us. And then after that, we can't grieve him anymore because he's not in relationship. No, 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 no. Through a pandemic where we forget about him for a year, God is still in relationship with us because he's chosen to adopt us out of the goodness of his sovereign will. That's what's going on here. Jonathan Edwards, one of my favorite famous theologians, he writes how early in his journey of faith, he hated the doctrine of God's sovereignty. Because he said, this is a horrible doctrine. It seems like God's just picking and choosing who's going to go to heaven and hell. But he shared how much kind of like a, a candy that's hard on the outside, but if you stick with it, it gets soft in the center. How he shared how the more he chewed on and digested and wrestled with this doctrine, the more he searched the scriptures rather than his own opinion. He writes, quote, I have often since not only had a conviction, but a delightful conviction. The doctrine of God's sovereignty has very often appeared an exceeding pleasant, bright, and sweet doctrine to me, an absolute sovereignty is what I now love to ascribe to God. Now, what changed? How does it go from being this doctrine that you hate and detest and you're embarrassed of to something that you delight in that is pleasant to you? Well, two quick, simple reasons why I think you might want to consider that. Number one, only absolute sovereignty provides you with the most profound sense and reality of genuine security. Think about this. The simplest way to put it, if you did absolutely nothing to earn salvation, you can do absolutely nothing to unearn it. Your security rests not in your works or your merit or anything you can or can't do, but solely and purely on the gracious choosing of God that sought you out and rescued you from your sin. What can Biscuit possibly do to make Erica not love him now? There was nothing lovable in the first place. She loves him because she loves him. Biscuit is secure. Number two, it instills a deep sense of humility within you. You see, every religion says the same message in different ways, which is this. You earn and you work your way towards favor or enlightenment or a good standing with the deity and you receive reward and compensation and based off your deeds, purely based off your deeds. In other words, good people in, bad people out. That's the fundamental message of every religion. Good, in, bad, out. Christianity is the only religion, and it's God does this often too, that subverts and flips that message on its head and actually says, well, guess what? Here's the problem. There actually are no good people. There are bad people who think they are good, and then there are bad people who, by the grace of God through His Spirit, realize that they are bad and need a rescue. That's what's going on here. And what this does, it liberates you from the burden of always having to compare yourself and measure up against others based on your works and your earthly accolades and your status. Because in Christ, guess what? You're already told you are utterly unworthy. You are utterly deserving of judgment, but you are still chosen by God. So therefore, your identity now, it is solely rooted in the foreign and external grace that Christ has shown you. So who can boast? That's the logic here. What can you possibly boast in when you were rescued from the state that you were in? 
So the doctrine of God's gracious sovereign election, what it does, it simultaneously frees you from both a superiority complex and thinking that you are better than people for whatever reason, and at the same time, an inferiority complex and thinking that others are better than you for some reason, because we are all spiritual biscuits. Hopeless, blind, and helpless without the intervention of God. God's sovereign will is rooted in grace, not merit. What are you boasting today? What are you proud of? What makes you insecure? All of those are symptoms that you forgot. The sovereign will of God is based on grace, not merit. Which leads to the third and quick last point. God's sovereign will cause us to submit and trust him. You know, as I close, you're thinking, well, how does a sermon on the doctrine of sovereignty apply to my life right now on this tail end of COVID? Well, I'm not sure about you, but one thing I've learned through this pandemic, it's really the reality of how frail our life and our plans can be, right? I mean, ask yourself this. A little over a year ago, could you have ever predicted or planned or imagined that you would be here right now? Could you? Would you have bet in a million years that, hey, your life is going to fundamentally flip on its head, all your plans are going to go down the drain, and you're going to be somehow become a Zoom king? Would you have ever thought that? And in a similar vein, do you really have confidence that you know where you will be a year from now, a few years from now, five years from now? You see, as a recent father, I realized it is absolutely anxiety-inducing and burdensome to try to determine what is the best route and plan of action to secure the safety and well-being of my family. And I'm sure it's the same for a lot of you. I mean, you think about finances, you think about getting a house and where you're going to live. You think about even the, the rising violence towards Asian Americans and is your family going to be okay? What's the world going to be like? It is absolutely overwhelming to try to determine the safest, most secure route forward, isn't it? You see, but one thing Genesis tells us is that for a Christian, the safest route and place to be is within the explicit and clarified written will of God in the scriptures. And that is not only for Genesis, but the rest of the scriptures will show that. You know why? Because a sovereign God, he knows what he is doing. He has a reason for why he is doing what he is doing. And those who place their faith in him and his plans and his covenant promise will never regret having made the decision to submit to him and his will in their lives. So simple question as I close. Ask yourself, what have you been submitting to and placing your trust in? And very simply, what areas may God be calling you to submit to him, whether in your hearts, in your personal lives, families, careers, or our plans? Let's pray together.